This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 2019, and this podcast is based on an actual lie. The movie, The Farewell. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are looking at the best movies of all time. What are the best? What belongs on the 100 best film list? We're making our own. We went through the AFI list. We culled that down uh, from 100 to 40, and now we are going through in little miniseries to find what films might populate this list. And we are leaving no stone unturned. We're doing foreign films. We're doing American films. We're doing rom-coms. We're doing uh, movies that are completely subtitled. We're all over the board. Today, we're talking about Farewell, uh, one of the more recent films that we'll ever be doing on this show. Uh, came out last year. But before we get into that, uh, last week's discussion of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, you know, where have you been with this movie? Thinking about it at all since we last left? I have been thinking about it all. I have been thinking about it a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been thinking about our conversation <laughs> that we had about grappling with art of the past and intentions and how much do they matter and where do they weigh. It, it's been a it's been a conversation I've still been having with you in my brain ever since. No, as I, I feel the same way. I, I love that this movie can kind of live um, on, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that like a good film is a film that you think about after it's been over. And, and you know, I definitely feel like Tokyo Story lived with me for uh, quite some time. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner did as well. Like, I'm just like, oh, this is really interesting how they did this, how they did this and, and what they were saying. And I like that I can still feel and get pulled in by a film that is so old. And I know that that's a, a dumb thing to say, but in a time where, you know, people are giving their hot takes on Citizen, Citizen Kane going like, it doesn't work. It's not that good. Oh you know, uh, it's so I terrible. was on air a couple of weeks ago with a guy who said he didn't like Citizen Kane. And I just, I just, I just stopped. I just stopped cold. L- luckily, like the radio host was like, really? Like she kind of was the heavy on it. I, just, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. He said that he said something that would have been true to my heart. He said, I don't let lists tell me what to think which is fair. We did a whole podcast about it. But still, I don't know how you could watch that movie and think it's bad. 
I know, but you know what? I think it's just cool to say that you don't like the popular thing. And I I know because I've done it. I've done the thing where everyone was talking about The Sopranos. I'm like, I'm not watching it. I'm not falling victim to this shit. And, uh, <laughs> and you know what? I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. But uh, I was very happy to be uh, right about being wrong. And so, you know, hopefully people come around. And, and I do think there is an element with these big films that you watch and you go, well, what's the big deal? And if you're not mm-hmm. looking at it in the right way or really letting yourself uh, be taken with it, I mean, I, 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 I still feel that way with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Like I saw it and I was like, I don't get it. I don't like it. I think wow. It too... Whoa. Okay. But I saw it once and I, yeah, it was too that's... built up for me. And, you know, so I should go back and watch it. But there are those films and culture that can kind of get so in your head that you can't look at it like a film. You look at it like this piece that needs to be reckoned with and that i think takes the fun out because no filmmaker is making a piece they're making a film a story and they want you to enjoy it and it's personal and i mean it ties kind of perfectly into today's film in a way it does it does and in my experience of watching it even you know this is another film that when i saw it at sundance everybody was like i saw this film and i sobbed like a baby and it's hard to see a film when you're being told what to think about it to know yes. that you're feeling your own emotions there's this quote that I came across in a book recently. Um, Somebody's quoting Emerson, and they said, there is nothing so sacred as the sanctity of one's own mind. And that feels like such a summation of, of what I'm trying to aim for my criticism, you know, to like make mm. sure that I believe what I think I believe and I feel what I think I feel. And I'm not just being riddled like Swiss cheese with other people's opinions or reacting to them that I can fe- I find firmament in how I believe. I got to tell you, Amy, as someone who reads your stuff and loves your stuff, I believe that you do. Um, well, with that, Amy, let's unspool it. The year is 2019. The U.S. House of Representatives approves articles of impeachment against President Trump on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Emperor Arahito of Japan steps down after a 30-year reign, and his son, Naruhito, succeeds him, marking the start of a new imperial era. Prime Minister Theresa May formally resigns amid the failure of the Brexit negotiations. Months of anti-government protests in Hong Kong begin as more than one million people march to protest a bill that would allow the extradition of people to mainland China to stand trial. Operation Varsity Blues leads to dozens of people being charged with bribery to get their kids into college. And audiences are watching Parasite, Avengers Endgame, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and today's film, The Farewell. Let's take a listen to a little clip. But all I saw was fear in your eyes. And I was confused and scared constantly because you never told me what was going on. And then yeah, yeah died. You didn't even tell me he was sick. So it felt like he just vanished suddenly. And you wouldn't even let me go to his funeral. You were at school. We didn't want you to miss the school. We did what we thought was best for you. But I never saw him again. All right, Amy, who's in it and what's it about? The Farewell, written and directed by Lulu Wang. It is her second movie and her most autobiographical movie. It's the story of a girl who was born in China but then raised in America, and she goes back home to China when she learns that her grandmother, Nene, has terminal lung cancer. The character, Billy, really wants to reconnect with her family, except she really can't because her family doesn't want her grandmother to know that she's dying. So instead of getting together and talking about their feelings, her family throws a huge wedding as an excuse to celebrate. This all actually happened to Lulu Wong, and the Lulu part here is played by Aquafina, who won a Golden Globe 
Also winning awards for this movie last year, Zhao Suzen, who plays Nai Nai. She won an independent spirit for Best Supporting Actress. And also The Farewell won like Best Feature overall. So this did extraordinarily well for an independent movie. The Farewell came out on July 12th, 2019, and it was a huge hit last summer in the indie market, which is great because the number one song in the box office charts all last summer also touches on the things that we cannot say to each other. It is by Little Nas X, and it is called Old Town Road. And Amy, one interesting side note, um, this movie opened in limited release on July 12th, and it beat out Avengers Endgame for the year's biggest per theater average, which is kind of interesting because obviously Avengers is the biggest movie of this year. But per theater, this movie did better on July 12th weekend. I love that because that's what you want to see from a Sundance movie that gets bought for a fairly large price. I mean... Here's what happens when a movie gets bought at Sundance. This is like a quick primer for people. You know, you show up, you have this hit movie, everybody starts bidding. And usually what happens is like a boutique, um, really cool, a hip distributor gives you a number and then like Netflix or Amazon tries to top it, right? What happens after that? Who knows? Like I've seen so many times like the movie that was the hit of Sundance come out on a streaming service and nobody was aware that it ever existed. And you're like, oh, this is heartbreaking. But The Farewell didn't do that because... Lulu Wang made a really tough choice. She was offered $7 million by A24 and an unspecified roughly double that by a streaming company that she doesn't want to mention. And she sat with that decision. She actually talked to her mom and she was like, should I take more money? Do I buy you a house? And her mom was like, I have a house. I don't need a house. Take the, take the distributor that's best for your company. And so A24 did well. I say I love this just because I get heartbroken every year that I fall in love with a movie at Sundance that nobody ever sees. So... Thank you for making that difficult choice, even though it cost her at least several million. Well, look, I'll say this as well. Uh, you don't want to mention the distributor, but I will. It was Quibi. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I think you're right. Like we are in a weird zone right now where independent film is getting so much exposure because of these streaming networks. But what takes off is really a crapshoot. And when you have a studio like A24 and Big Beach as a production company, they really put their muscle behind it. That's the first A24 movie that is PG. Uh, I've worked with A24. I've been in their movies and they really are passionate about creating a slate of film that is incredibly diverse and cool and interesting. And they really do their best to get the word out about it. They know how to, you know, get it out there so that when it comes out, it will beat Avengers Endgame in the per screen uh, ratio. And I have to say, Amy, the thing that I love about this movie, and it's the thing that I feel like I talk about a lot on this show, is it's so incredibly unique. I think we've seen so many independent films kind of get all balled up and you can kind of say, oh, that's a this kind of movie. That's a this kind of movie. And when you see something like this, it's so specific. It's so unique. The voice is so strong. I've never seen a movie like this. I've never seen a movie that even deals with a topic like this. I mean, culturally, that makes sense. Um, But I was really kind of blown away to have a movie challenge me in a discussion that I really fluctuated on. I mean, this whole movie is based around a core conceit. Like, do you tell someone 
something terrible that you know, or do you protect them from that? You know, it's the individual versus the community. And I really wrestled with this core conceit the entire film. Yeah, I mean, I think it touches on some of the stuff we've been talking about through this, like the lies we tell each other in order to stay connected. You know, the little polite lies, I'll see you again, I love you, I'll endlessly, like, I'll never betray you. Like the, the, little, the little fibs that keep a relationship together or maybe drive people apart. It, we talked about this a lot, I think, in Tokyo Story, where we were like, oh, this family just can't connect. And here, it's an example of a family that is using their disconnection to connect in a way, you know, like by joining in together on this one lie. But it is such a much, so much a story about like how we keep things from the people we most love. I mean, from the very beginning of this film, you know, I, you, it sets it up just so cleanly. You have Aquafina on the street, Billy, you're talking to her grandmother on the phone and they're doing nothing but lying to each other, like nonstop. The grandmother's like a little bit nagging her, like, do you have a hat? Are you warm? what's happening? And she's like, yes, I have a hat on. And she absolutely does not have a hat on. And the grandmother's like, oh, I'm at my aunt's house. Everything is fine. When no, she's at the hospital. And this this glue of lying to each other, to be to see it done with such affection and not like, dun, 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 somebody's going to get stabbed. It's really cute. Yeah, because this relationship at the core of the film is a relationship that's physically distant, but emotionally close. And when you are physically distant, you can afford to tell these lies, to create a nicer version of your life because you are, in a way, protecting the other person. You don't want to make them nervous. You don't want to make them feel like, oh, I wish I was there or, you know, they need me. You are trying very hard, I think, especially in your early 20s, to show that you are self-sufficient. You don't want anyone to feel or lose sleep over you. But sometimes you do need people to lose sleep over you or know where you're at, but we protect ourselves. And I think... The father does such a great job of kind of summing up this core premise of like lying to those who are important to you in this story that he tells about the cat. So one day the wife goes out of town and when she returns, the husband says, honey, the cat is dead. And she says, how can you tell me so abruptly like this? You have to ease me into bad news. Like, um, honey, the cat, he got on the roof. And so, now, a few months later, the wife goes out of town again. And she returns, and the husband greets her again. But this time, he learned his lesson. And as the wife comes through the door, he says, Honey, your mom, she got on the roof. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. I mean, I I struggle with this because I'm an oversharer. Are you an Mm oversharer? Depends. Like, um, it depends on who with, right? I, I, I yeah. do, but I don't know if I emotionally overshare. Like, I think I keep a lot of stuff uh, where, like, I am mentally a little bit more private. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I find myself doing this thing all the time. I'm like, oh, don't tell that to your boyfriend. He'll just worry. And then three mm-hmm. seconds later, I'm like, guess what? And I just announce everything that's on oh, my mind. I, I definitely do that. I have moments where I'm like, I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't say it. I shouldn't say it. I just said it. I do that all <laughs> the time. Exactly. And, and, you know, the father here has that separate speech later. He's like, listen, when you do that to somebody, you're just putting your emotions on them. 
You know, you're making mm -hmm. them take care of you. You know, you're yeah. you're asking for solace from them. It's like the strongest thing for you is to keep your negative emotions that you feel about your grandmother dying inside and not put burden them with her. He's like, he's like, that's such an American thing of you to do is kind of how he phrases it. Like you're so American that you think that your individual emotions are so important that they should take precedence almost over the person that you say you care about. Yeah, well, I mean, this movie is very simple. At its core, it's an incredibly simple story. Like you said, the grandmother is dying and the whole family has conspired to not tell her. They are in agreement to this. But Billy, who is played by Aquafina, is really wrestling with this idea. And I think I see myself in both sides of it because what I found to be so profound about this movie was the relationship that Billy was able to have with her grandmother because she didn't tell her this, right? The entire film really shows this beautiful, um, like, sharing of knowledge. Like, I, I feel like the grandmother passes on so much knowledge to her in an organic, wonderful way, not from a deathbed, not in a sickly position. You see this grandmother being strong, whether it's arguing about crab or lobster at the banquet or going through the, the wedding photo uh, sets, which were amazing. This movie is beautifully directed, by the way. Like, there are some shots in here that are, wow, like, just absolutely stunning. And, and Lulu didn't go to film school. She just learned, apparently, from listening to director's commentary tracks. So there you go. Uh, there's so much great uh, visual stuff in this film, but I found that to be really important. I think sometimes when you label someone as sick, you start to treat them as sick. You speak a little bit quieter. You are a little bit more gentle with them. You don't joke as much. You, you know, everything is tender and that's not who we are. And that's not the best parts of our relationship. And so I really saw what the family was saying. And, and I got it. And I was like, oh, no, no, you're doing the right thing. But then I also felt like if I was dying, I would want to know. It's it's a, it's a um, like this battle really went on throughout the entire film. I mean, what would you do, Amy? Like, what would you, where would you, I know you're an oversharer, but would you put the community above the individual or, or do you think you'd be more of a Billy or more of Billy's dad? Oh, gosh. I think, oh. I think, I think at this, at the end of the day, I'd be able to keep it together. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think I don't have the most emotional face. So maybe I could keep it together. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe we'll see. But yeah, I wonder, I mean, I, I think we all know who we are and we hit a crisis point. And from what I've seen, I can be incredibly ridiculous about small things and incredibly calm about important things. Right. Do you know, like I lose, I go to pieces if I like break a mug that I love. But every time I've been hit by a car, I'm like, okay, I like just, I, my brain switches over. So I'd like to think in a crisis like this, I'd keep it together. But what you're describing there, and, and forgive me if I'm reading into it, is an emotional thing breaks you up. A physical mm -hmm. object doesn't. And, and I think that that is the way a lot of us kind of live. It's like, okay, yeah, I, it's going to be a pain in the ass to bring my car to the shop and, and deal with all this shit and insurance and my rates are going to go high. But there's no there there, right? There's no emotional center to it. And I, 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 I will say that I think in my family, and, and I've lived through some like traumatic situations, uh, watching June's parents go through death and, and, uh, and leading up to that, like, having to be the person who is kind of keeping things in check and then kind of at the end, 
letting myself kind of decompress. So I think I see myself a little bit more in the family side. Not to say that I'm ignoring it, or but there is a role for, and forgive me for using this term, like the jester, the the person who's like not we're we're moving forward. We're having fun. We're, you know, we're we're yes, that's here, but we're we're pushing through, we're having a different conversation than how are you feeling? Let go back to sleep, you know, that kind of idea. Yeah, my favorite advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, she's just the absolute greatest. She's mm-hmm. like the most brilliant, sensible person on the entire planet. She has this phrase that I don't remember at all. But the image of it is yeah. that there's these like rings of emotions. And like the person at the center of the trauma is in the first ring. And your job, if you're like the next ring to that person, is to like take their trauma and help, like push it out, help them like purge and right. not to put it back in, you know? And then the person surrounding you, like they take your trauma. So like if your mom is sick, then you're dealing with her and trying to take care of her emotions and not adding to it. And it's, you know, your loved ones and partners who are understanding what you're going through and they help your burden. Yeah, I totally, no, I totally see that. And I think that that is the community dealing with it. And I think what's so interesting about this story is it's not a what if, it is a this actually happened. I mean, this is a story, like you mentioned, that uh, Lulu told on NPR that after she told it, Producers came out of the woodwork and wanted to make this movie. And how do they want to make this movie was all in very different ways. You know, some of them really wanted her to kind of whitewash it. They didn't want it to be so uh, Chinese, ultimately, right? They wanted a, a, a white boyfriend. They wanted these things that we come to expect from uh from, I guess, a big Hollywood movie. And she yeah, helped. They wanted you know, like more drama in a way. Like they're like, OK, you're going to have a fake wedding. Well, you should be the bride. Right. And like your right. white husband, your white boyfriend, like you'll explain all the culture to him as you guys are being, you know, pressured into get married for this. And she was like, if that's the movie that you think is more sellable, it's not my point at all. You know, like because then it becomes about my relationship with this white boyfriend who I'm introducing to my family. And should I or should I not get married to him when she's like, I want this to be about my personal grief about my grandmother and everything right. you're that's adding the is the story. You know, it's funny because that's a little bit of what crazier rich Asians is, but that is a movie about that relationship. And what we're talking about is this movie is about the grandmother and the granddaughter and that relationship. I don't want to, I don't want to tarnish it with any extra stuff. I think one of the best parts of this movie is the isolation that she's, that she feels in this country, the connection to this country, like she's the island here. And I, I think that that stillness is so, Uh, helpful to tell the story. And I mean, and you need a producer that's going to help you do that. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, I want to give like a little bit of applause to Chris White's, you know, the filmmaker. Like, you must know him. He did like yeah. about a boy, New Moon, American Pie, Golden Compass. He heard her story on This American Life 
And he just called her that night. He like figured out her number. I think he Instagram messaged her, DM'd her. I think he tried to hit her up in every single way possible when he heard that episode. And he was like, I want you to be able to tell your story. And I have enough clout, I think, in this town that I can protect you from the people who are going to want to insert like, you know, your white boyfriend, whatever his name is, who's in all the Netflix movies. What's that kid's name? The kind of doofusy kid with the hair. Oh, uh, I, I was going to say Noah oh, Centennial. No, yeah, I'll no, protect yeah. you from. He didn't say that, but I'm saying that. I'll protect you from the Noah Centennialization of your film. But you know, making a movie is a gamble. Literally, like you are putting money up and hoping that people come see your thing. And to protect that money, people are always putting these different things in. Well, we need this. We need that. We heard it with Eve's Bayou. Like, get me a big star. Well, now we have a big star. Now we're not sure. And this is a movie the same way where, you know, Chinese financers thought the story was too American, uh, you know, and then, you know, American financers thought it was too Chinese. You know, they didn't want to do it in subtitles. It was this battle of what is going to make money. And I think we've seen time and time again, what makes money is an original voice telling a story that we haven't heard. And if you promote it and get people to it, it will connect with them. Whether that's my big fat Greek wedding, whether that's crazy rich Asians, whether that's girls trip, whether whatever it is, you tell a good story, you tell something that makes people laugh, cry, whatever, they're in. And I think we are, we do so much of a disservice to make sure it's checking every box that we actually lose some of the uniqueness to the actual story. Well, yeah. And talking about that point of view, what really struck me on this watch is how many tangents that Lulu Wong decides not to go on in order to, you know, like maybe give the story like pat resolutions in different corners. You're like, we actually never have any idea what conversation happened between her cousin and his Japanese bride to say, we've barely been dating and let's get married. We never know. We never know how she feels about it. We never know he how he feels about it. Well, we get these little glimpses, like when he drinks a little bit too much wine at the big banquet, not the wedding banquet, but the night before banquet, right? When they're having that real big uh, argument about being in America or being in China. Like you get you get that and you can kind of go off on your own, you know, yeah. oh, yeah, well, I love that. You're an imagination, but there's no like, he gets drunk and tells her, here's how I feel. And then at the end, he comes back and says like, I love my wife. I'm so glad we did this. You're like, we don't get any of that. And I I appreciate that almost Spartan point of view. And it happens with pretty much every character here. It's like Lulu gives you this glimpse into the fact that this story belongs to everybody and we'll just never know. You know, like her dad is on a whole adventure. This is his mom. He's seeing his brother for the first time in 25 years. They've gone into different countries. They're coming back together. We have like Aquafina walking in on them, having drinks, like, getting drunk together, sharing these moments, but we never know what they're talking about. You know, they're living in their complete other movie. Or even, I'm like fascinated even by like her mother's movie. Like this is her mother-in-law. And we get this little, little insight in the fact that they don't get along that well. She should be resting her in a hospital, not stressing about a fake wedding. You really don't know your nana. You know, she enjoy both everyone around. Make her feel important. Make her feel in control. Mom. It's true. That's why she hated staying in America in our house. You know, because she could not tell anyone what to do. Whatever I do, never good enough for her. But she can't say anything because it was my house. Mom, stop. What? What's up, You have always had issues with her, but right I now... I don't have a problem with her. She's the one who had a problem with me. She's dying. Can you be a little more sensitive? What do you want from me? To scream and cry like you? But that's really like all we get. That's as much as of a taste I think we get of anybody's personality of like how they're feeling about this death. 
And but, yet there's this whole world that's alluded to. Well, again, it's not the crucial relationship because even Aquafina's journey, we're not quite sure what that is. Like she got rejected from a Guggenheim fellowship, right? That's all we really know. And I love how the movie, it does so many great symbolic things. Um, talking about like stories you want to see more of. I love the the way that she peers into the room of the gambler with maybe these sex workers, I don't know, or these women that he is with. And, you know, you get this moment where she's kind of peering in. And this is kind of what the whole movie is. She's she's peering through a door that she hasn't really peered into, right? Because it's her whole family. And yes, she has this relationship with her grandmother. But I think what the family's saying is, you can come in here but you have to abide by the rules of this thing. Like you don't just get to come in and take over this room. And and that's why I, I love that symbolism of looking through the door. Cause that's kind of what she's doing. Like she's, she can't really touch everything. And then you, you have this family that's not without emotion. I mean, this family is so kind of good about articulating where they feel. I mean, these monologues that she gets from her father's brother and her father are some of the most moving pieces in the entire film, right? Like they really are like, figure your shit out, get on board. Like, this is why we're doing it. Like, get over yourself. It's not like we don't talk about emotions. Like, no, no, we're doing something better than we're protecting her. And I, I love that. They're, they're not like, oh, she's in an emotionless family and she's trying, she's, you know, she's bringing in the light. No, she's a, truly at a culture clash. And this is what this movie really is dealing with on, on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, you bringing up that shot of her looking through the door, it makes me think of when she first arrives in China and she shows up at her house uh, of her grandmother. You get that kind of really beautiful kind of pull back look of the apartment complex where her grandmother lives, you know, that massive, pretty, but uniformity. You know, yeah. I looked up, by the way, more about this town because it, it's set in Changchong, um, which is a town I don't know very much about, but like. It's huge. It's um, almost as big as New York. It's seven and a half million people. And it's kind of called the Detroit of China, like the town where her grandmother okay. lives. Um, it's in the north. It's in the north, which you might be able to guess from the kind of food that they're eating. Yeah. Um, but that it was the center or still kind of is the center of car domestic production in China. So it's a little bit of like an industrial town. It's not known as like an artistic, beautiful town. But what it is, you know really wrestling with in its history is that this is a town where um, during World War II, the Japanese set up one of their capitals. And so there was a lot of occupation in this town, which we get these tiny hints of as well, like in the character of Nene. Yeah, I love these like just tiny asides, you know, like, oh, she was in the war, a thing that just comes across very late. She was shot. It reminded me a bit of that scene even in Tokyo Story where like the guy is hanging out with his military buddies and they're getting drunk together and like talking about their good old times. And there's that man who's always been quietly in love with her. And he's like, if I don't propose to you now, like yeah. when will I ever get to tell you how I feel? And in that, just there's she's sitting at a table and you see this woman that you've already feel like you've gotten to know in different angles from a completely new different perspective, you know, as like a, a, a freedom fighter, which Lulu Wang's grandmother really was, you know, it wasn't quite, she wasn't, she didn't get shot. But when she was 14, um, she joined the Chinese army to escape an arranged marriage that she'd been forced into. And so she was there in the Chinese army fighting against the nationalists during the Chinese revolution. And she got a limp because she had to march across China when she was in the army. So when you, she limped in real life, it wasn't a bullet, but it was this military scar. And 
and I guess that just really struck me because maybe that's one of the things that I really can relate to is, you know, my grandparents served like my, my grandfathers did and they're both passed away. And sometimes I think I'll never know all of their stories. And it kind of kills me, you know, that I won't yeah. really know what they did or saw because I was too young for them to tell me. And so, you know, to wander into a story and it seems like maybe Billy has heard the story before, but I want to like sit down and ask Nanny. And in that scene, I just get this like need of time. Like I want to hear everything. And the movie doesn't let you and it makes it more tantalizing. But the truth is, or at least the way I look at it, is the story that you'll hear is a version of the story, right? We talked about this a little bit in other films. Like, is it the true story? And I guess maybe that's not important, right? But it's it's these little lies that we tell, the way that we build ourselves up, the way that we make ourselves either the victim or the or the hero. And, you know, and I think we always want, you know, we always want to feel like the story that we heard is the truth. And that's who our our parents or grandparents were. But, you know, it's very hard to find out who they truly are. And I think yeah. that that's kind of one of the cool things about this movie is like, yeah, that's the story that that person's telling. I don't buy that he did karate and he was fighting all these. Like, I feel like that's the story that he tells. It's it's the same way like the father is at the table telling that story, you know, uh, the joke at the beginning. Like, they're, everyone's kind of putting on these airs. Like, who's over? How we're doing it? What? How we are acting to everybody else? We all put on this version of ourselves that's not ourselves True. to make it all easier. But it made me think a little bit of Jaws. You know how in Jaws, mm. there's that scene where Quint is like, let me tell you about the Annapolis. And yeah. you hear this little story about his time in the service. And it seems to sum up everything about who his character is. The fact that Lulu doesn't give us that, you know, that she hints mm. at it, I think is such an interesting choice. And yeah. yeah. It, and then it makes it what you're saying about the, the stories people tell themselves and how they seem kind of puffed up in a lot of these situations. That makes it seem even more in contrast when everybody is talking about Billy playing the piano when she was a kid and how good she was and how the local church let her use their piano because they couldn't afford one. That's actually all completely true from Lulu Wong's life as well. Uh, and Billy is the one person at the table who's By like, the way, she's I just playing play. piano in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's playing piano during the opera song, but that she's just like, I'm not that good. Like she actually deflates her story. You know, I just I stopped playing. I don't play anymore. She's she won't puff herself up. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I don't know but, if anybody else in the family does that. But I love that moment with the grandma where the grandma's like, you don't be that person. Don't be that person when everyone's singing. And you say, I don't want to sing. And you see that it actually affects Billy because she does sing at the wedding. Right. And I know that that's part of, uh, you know, this kind of traditional ceremony, but she does get up there and she does sing. And, and she does play piano later. Like she... Yeah, she this idea. It angry. Angry. I mean, it's a great, yeah. it's a great scene. It kind of underscores. It's a beautiful underscoring of that scene. I love that scene. And I love what the sentiment behind it is, which is like, we only live once and we should be embracing all these things and we don't have to be perfect and we don't have to be right and we don't need to know the right way of doing things, but we need to enjoy the moment. And that's what I really get from this movie. Like, let's enjoy the moment. We will laugh more about you singing a bad song than we will ever 
talk about you not getting up and singing. Like you're not saving yourself from embarrassment and you're actually eliminating something from your life. And, and, and I think this goes back to community versus individualism. I want to kind of play Lulu talking about this as well, because I think it's an interesting idea because it's about not just about the grandmother. It's about how you interact with your world. Are you a part of your world or are you isolated from it? So the film, uh, you know, plays with this, um, the, the theme of collectivism versus individuality. And I think that, you know, um, Aquafina's character, Billy, as an American, she very much believes in truth and freedom as uh, the most important values. And, um, you know, her Chinese family says, well, are those really good values if it doesn't really serve the person that you're telling the truth to, if it doesn't serve the family? And, you know, it's also the sense of duty that if she tells the grandmother the truth, she's not the person who's going to be around to deal with the results of that truth being told. You know, so if the grandmother gets depressed and just stops eating and stops sleeping, she's not the person who actually has to deal with those consequences. Um, the sister is the one who does. And she says, you know, I know my sister the best and this is what I believe is best for her. Just this idea, I think that like, you know, this idea that you're always adding into your community, right? Like, when you're taking yourself out of the community, you really are, I think, you're not only sacrificing your own joy of life, but you're sacrificing other people's joy of life. I mean, just go to the singing thing. Oh, they don't want to sing. Now I'm embarrassed to sing. Should we not be at karaoke? Let's not, let's go home. It's not fun. And then all of a sudden, we're in, if you just sing badly, we're just going to embrace it all. And I think I wrestle with that all the time. Like, it's you? not right. It's not perfect. Oh my God. Yeah. You, I mean, I would have thought like, I've always been a little jealous of you. I've been like, you, your, your history of like performing on the stage, I would have thought you'd be like the first to not mind grabbing the microphone, whereas I'm petrified of, of screwing up and making an ass of myself all the time. Put me on stage, put me in front of camera. I have no problem doing anything. Put me in a moment where I have to like passionately talk about something that is true to me or reveal myself in a way that's not protected. I am incredibly closed off. I mean, I've run political fundraisers. I've, I can talk about politics and it makes me the most tongue tied I'll ever be. I, I have a hard time articulating my thoughts. I've actually figured out ways to help me now get through it because I think what I used to do was it used to frighten me so much that I would just go, I'm going to go off the cuff. And now what I do is I write, I write it and I, and I get it and I feel the flow of it. And, and I really am able to take away some of these things. But it, it, I'm, I'm constantly embarrassed by it. Like I'm, I'm embarrassed by my wedding vows. I mean, I love my wedding vows, but I'm also embarrassed by them because I'm like, I, they could have been better. I don't know. Like, when, it's, when it's raw and vulnerable, that's when I'm, uh, I'm the worst. I hear that. I hear that. And I, I think your analogy means a lot to me. Stepping back from the table contributes nothing to everybody's life. Yeah. Because that's very, I, I think that is in my wheelhouse. Like, I mean, to use a very silly example, uh, one of my absolute best friends, Jen Yamato, is like the greatest karaoke singer in the world. Uh-huh. And so I love going karaoke with her and I can't wait until we're allowed to do that again when it's like safe and healthy. But also she's a person who can sing like heart alone and just nail it. And I can sing like a Tom Petty song because he's kind of in my range and that's it. And so following her in karaoke is my greatest, greatest fear. Hate doing it. Hate doing it. She walks into a karaoke bar, any city. We've been to tons of cities. Everybody stops and just like applauds her. Strangers come up and they're like, I love you. Will you marry me? And meanwhile, I sing and nobody looks. People go to the bar and order drinks. And so like it's been really hard for me to try to be, to, to try to contribute 
to the atmosphere, you know? Well, I think the idea is that we all have the spotlight and we shine the spotlight on our... I, I think this idea of stepping into your light, right, in life. And that's and that's what we have to do is like step into... Like, I think a lot of us do half stepping into light. Like, we're kind of there, we're kind of not. Like, and And sometimes the people that we love, they're not the best at what they do, but they are... Like, I look at Jack Black who I think is actually very funny. I'm just talking about like Jack Back can put on like a, a very tight Spider-Man costume and like dance like the WAP video, uh, you know, uh, while being like hosed down, you know, and it's like, he's just going, for, there's no embarrassment for it. He's just going for it and it's silly and it's goofy and you go, oh, I'd love to do that. Like, or I'd love to have that ability that regularly, you know, like, and I think that's what you see with people doing karaoke. Yes, their voices are great, but part of the reason why they're great is because they're, personality is great. They're like, I'm grabbing this mic. I'm going to sing this thing. I'm going to fucking sell this moment. And it's, you are, it's the reason why we like our singers too. It's like the singers who are like, give me, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but I'll just say it like, give me like a Billy Joel or an Elton John over a Michael Stipe. My first concert ever was Billy Joel. And like, you know, he's a guy playing a piano and piano is like a weird thing to kind of keep energetic you know because you're like you have to play Mm -hmm. a piano and you watch them like the showmanship of it is impressive (laughs) well then how lovely is is it that nene is giving aquafina's character advice in this movie that like feels like actually very direct advice to us like how often does a character say something in a movie we are like oh i need to remember that and adopt it in my own world yeah you know that doesn't happen when nick cage is like i'm gonna shoot that lion but it's like happening here well and it also shows that we are connected like that final sequence of the film you know, where she, uh, Aquafina's back in New York, and, you know, there's this whole idea of the bird coming through, right? And so, like, I guess there is the old wives' tale. If a bird flies into your house, it signals impending death, right? And whether or not you want to believe that, whatever you have. But I don't think that this movie is about the bird and about death. I think it's also just showing you the awkwardness of, like, being in a place you don't belong. Like, those, it, this, this is what Aquafina's feeling. It's like until she feels comfortable. And at the end... She kind of connects with birds. The bird is coming into her. And then at the end, she connects with the birds to make like this kind of communication across the globe. I, I don't know. You know, instead of shooing the birds away, she's kind of calling them in or or using them or embracing them. Like not saying like, that's different. I get out of here. She's like, no, no. Now I am one with you. And she is one with her family now. She's one with her grandmother. And no matter how far apart they are, there is like a connection, a spiritual connection. And, and it's... It's, I don't know, there's like a, there's something interesting about the birds. Yeah, you're right. Like she summons her grandmother's spirit and the birds literally take flight. Yeah. You know, and it occurred to me that I think I've been fundamentally wrong about this movie since I saw it at Sundance, which Mm. is, I left the movie kind of grumbling. I was like, I'm so annoyed the grandmother lives, right? Because at the end of the film, you see that image of like the grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, being like, I'm still here and it's six years later and I'm doing my exercises. And I remember being like, what a cheat. Because when the birds flew, I like started crying. I was like, that's so beautiful. Like what peace, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of yeah. re- like spirit energy is there? And then to be like, she lived, fuck that. And only this watch was I like, oh, these could be two separate things. It doesn't have to be completely true. Like maybe the fictional grandmother did die. In that scene, just because yeah. Lulu Wang's grandmother did live, I hadn't ever cleaved it apart like that. I just assumed that like this Nene on film was still alive, which for some reason really irritated me. I guess I really wanted I, I'd accepted her death. But I think there's something different. Like I think in a weird way, 
the grandma is sending the bird to her. Then at the end, Aquafina sends the bird to her grandma. Like they're like this is how they are communing. Like and they aren't that far apart. They're always going to be connected. No matter if she's there in China, like she wants to be in China at one point. She's like, well, I have to take care of her. No, no, no. They're always going to be connected. You don't have to be connected by physical space. You can be connected in so many ways. And it's the universe is so small. And and I love that idea that the birds, like, which are messengers, you know, normally too, like that they are like communicating with each other. Like she's sending birds and they're sending birds. And and I think this movie also is giving us that freedom to be like, go live your life. Go shine your light. Like you are you may be far, but you will never be far from my heart. And and that is, you are, I am you. A part of me is you. Like when you gave, when she does her grandma, she sends the birds. And if I'm going to say, go on my story and say that my grandma, that the grandma's sending the birds, she became part of her grandma. Like it's a beautiful idea. Like she can be in New York. She can live this life and she's still right there. And she's not giving up anything. And as a matter of fact, she's continuing and, and, and kind of moving her, what her grandma would have done in her youth, I think. Are, are we smoking that metaphorical podcast weed right now? I mean, because I, I, mean like I love it. I love it. I mean, I get yeah, into all well, this shit. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're smoking that metaphorical podcast weed, then what I love about city birds in particular mm-hmm. is the way that they move in a flock that I don't understand. Right? Like, mm-hmm. my, I think the most beautiful sight in the world, and I will say this to the grave, is, you know, seeing a flock of pigeons in the city and watching them when they just decide to like circle this way and then circle that way. And you get that glimpse of all of these black wings and then they flip ground and you get all of the white underbellies. Yeah. And the idea that all of these birds are making this choice together to go this way into that, that they're so unified, even though they're, you know, feet apart in the sky. I've never understood that, you know, and it seems to me some deeper sense of natural community, communication, affinity, transmission of ideas. And maybe that's what a family also is when it's separated by this much distance, you know, to be moving as one, even though you're individuals. Yeah, I no, I think that, that by, by the way, I want to just give that a moment because I think you're totally right. Like we are a collective. Our life is a collective. And when we are, when we are at our worst, we are individuals, if that makes sense, right? Because Everything good, and it, and it doesn't have to be the same, right? It doesn't have to be like, I think there's been this misnomer that like the the perfect collective is you get married and you have children and you do this sort of dance, but you don't have, that doesn't have to be the collective that you have. The collective that you have can be your, you know, for lack of a better term, like your friends giving, your, your these people that are important to you, the, this world that you create, it, you know, you, you can make it all, but as a community, we all build each other up. And I know that there's, we've talked on this show exclusively about, you know, directors and the ones who really have the vision and the passion and et cetera, et cetera. And they know what they want and they're, they're left alone. But I would say more often than not, the first time one of those auteurs really gets together, makes their first big picture and it works. It's because they've used all these great resources. And oftentimes the second or the third picture, when they finally get everything that they want to do the way they want to do it, sometimes falls flat because they cut out the collective, right? Or they diminished the importance of the collective. And, you know, look, there can be a million different ways of saying that, but I I also think like somebody like David Fincher, who is in very control, I think also uh, is very collaborative. 
he just wants things done in a certain way, but he's very much like, let's work within these parameters. Like, uh, so I don't, you know, like, like I can see that, but I, I often see like, it's like you have them with musical artists as well. Like they have some sort of pop factory creating all their songs. Like, no, no, I'm getting rid of that. I'm doing my own thing. And be like, not interested. Uh, I don't know. So I think that we are trained to reject collective because it's not as sexy as individual. Yeah. I mean, I think we think auteurs are sexier than like collaborators. I mean, this is kind of silly, but it, and this is probably a bad time to say it given his career. But one of the projects that my boyfriend and I have decided to undertake during winter is to understand the filmography of directors that we don't think of as auteurs, mm. like Ron Howard. So we're trying okay. to watch Ron Howard movies and be like, can we understand Ron Howard on a deeper level? Like, what is it about a Ron Howard movie and the people that combine to make it click? And it, it it sounds like a weird project, but it came apart just because I think there's certain directors we think of as auteurs or like, I, you are a person. And then there's certain people that we don't think of as that at all in our legacy. And we've talked about this in the past when it comes to somebody like Howard Hawks. Right. Mm -hmm. How like people of Howard Hawks's day didn't see him as an auteur, but only later when like scholarship came about and French uh, filmmakers were like, we love him. Did we shift our thinking about him? So we're trying to see if we can shift our thinking around Ron Howard. And it's probably not going to happen. But I have finally seen Backdraft. And I think auteur, we, you know, we're saying it in the French way. Right. You know, this idea like it has to be of deeper meaning, like there has to be something there. And I think that certain people. Like, I look at Jim Burroughs. Like, Jim Burroughs is behind some of the best television shows of all time. But I don't think that, for most people, he's a household name. But he's directed some of the best television ever. Is that his voice? Or does he know how to create and tell a good story? Because a storyteller and an auteur seem different. I think Ron Howard is a really good storyteller. But that's kind of looked down upon because it's like, well, a story isn't as good as, what are you saying? And I think sometimes a story can just be a story. Like, there are great stories to be told. Yeah, I'd like to find the honor in just being a collaborative storyteller. But also, yeah. uh, that said, I like that we've gone on this whole tangent um, based on the idea of animal communication, which when it occurs to me that I think there is a hint in this movie that we can take animal communication very seriously, and that is through Ellen the Dog. Ellen the dog has something to say. And actually, Ellen the dog is just a real dog that actually yes. belongs to the ant. Um, the woman playing the ant here, Lu Hong, is actually Lulu Wong's real great aunt. She really was her grandmother's sister who came up with this idea of not telling the grandmother. And they tried to cast other people. And really, then at the end of the day, Lulu was just like, you know what? She lived this. And maybe it's tough because like, I'm asking her to relive decisions she made. And like, is it ethical to like put her in this position of kind of like re-grappling with, you know, t tricky choices, you know, to, to like kind of relive what you did um, for better and worse. But she's, I think, very good. She talked about how like when she went through the audition process with her great aunt, that at first her great aunt was like very performative and like, yes, here I am. Right. And I have come up with the scheme, you know, because she's not an actor. And hearing her talk about getting a performance out of her, I thought was such great insight in you how you do that. You know, she just was like you know, 
talk through it, you know, talk to me about your grief. Like, and then she put that on screen. And I think she gives such a great performance in this movie. Uh, The performances are absolutely amazing. And this is a very big, it's a family affair. I mean, look, the grandmother came to set. The film in uh, Chinese is called Don't Tell Her. The grandmother came to set, didn't know what they were shooting, that they had to be very clandestine about what they were doing. At one point, they were going to actually shoot in the grandmother's house. Like, that's how much they were up in it. The dog, like you mentioned, is the dog of, you know, of, of her sister. Like, and they couldn't change the outfit because they didn't want to change the, like, because, uh, you know, Lulu hated it, but uh, they couldn't convince her great aunt to change the dog's clothes. You know, there's so much that is so personal here. And I love that the grandmother came to set. She didn't know what it was about. And then finally... She found out because when the film was released in Chinese, uh, her friend saw a review of it and sent it to her. And it said, this movie is based <laughs> on you. And, and she's like, wait a second. Oh, my God. And, then, and the, then the grandmother had great respect because she's like, oh, well, of course. The movie is called Don't Tell Her. I'm the her. Uh, you get dummy. Like, you know, there, um, you know, there's so much there. And, and that know, also it, means it worked. They didn't tell her. And from everything I've read, I think she's still around. I think, I think she she's is. still doing very well. So don't tell is a successful health strategy. I, I do like it because I think that there is something about like, you know, they always say mind over matter. And and, you know, when you think you're sick, you get sicker or, you know, and again, I'm not saying anyone has a cure for anything. I'm just saying or that people who are sick d- don't have a strong mind. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that there's a point of view here that is uh, really, um, you know, kind of exciting to look at death and passing in a different way. And and I, I just, I don't know. I've been, I've seen a lot and I'm sure you have too. And there's something about it that was so much more graceful. And that moment where she drives away and she's crying, she breaks down and, and, you know, and, and, and Billy looks back at her like a child. I, I, I don't know. It just killed me. Like it did, because it's like, that's how you want to say goodbye. You want to say goodbye like that. And, um, in a moment where you're both on your own two feet in a way, I guess, if you can, if you can. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, one thing that Lulu left out when she told the story um, is that her her grandmother had actually been keeping secrets from them. This is actually something she reveals in the um, This American Life episode that didn't make it into the movie. Later, little Nainai told me that there was, in fact, a secret that Nainai had kept from us. That's the sound of me being totally shocked. She tells me that in 2007, six years before the lung cancer diagnosis, Nina had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Not unusual for a woman in her 70s, but my dad didn't know, my uncle didn't know, I didn't know. She had a mastectomy and she'd been wearing a prosthetic breast for nine years. 
Nainai concealed this from our family and uncle's family, not because she was ashamed, but so that we wouldn't worry. All this time that we were lying to her to protect her, she had also put on a show to protect us. So I love that. I mean, it's almost like a spy versus spy movie. All of these double crosses about health, like, you know this. Well, now you don't know this. And yet this is all happening in a family that is pretty open about talking about death, at least in the abstract. Like Lulu said that her grandmother has picked out the clothes she wanted to be buried in when she was 60 years old. You know, she like already knows they're right there. I don't know if that means you can't gain weight. Like, what if they don't fit you anymore? Do you have to, like, stay in shape for your funeral You can just cut the back of them. You can cut the back at that point. (laughs) But there's that little mention where um, they talk about the paid grief mourners. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is that true? I want to know more about that. You know, I did some reading about it. One anecdote that Lulu said is, like, when her real grandfather died, you know, who gets alluded to here, her older uncle, um, who we have uh, played in this film, he had to perform grief for the family at that funeral. So when her grandfather died, this older uncle character that we know, he went to the funeral, he stood in front of the coffin, he raised this clay bowl over his head, and then he started to sob, and then he broke the bowl over his head so that it shattered into pieces. Wow. And I was like, wow. And then I found videos of what the real fake mourners are like in Asia. Check this out. The marching band of 15 women wearing short skirts and leather boots are paid about 450 US dollars an hour to play pop music at the ceremony. A relative of the Liang family explains why they've been hired. We're not going to focus on the hot girls in the marching band. After all, the reason the marching band's hot girls have come is to comfort our feelings of grief to prevent everyone and the relatives from only focusing on the fact that my great-aunt has left us. We're hoping that my great-aunt can leave us in a happier way and our emotions won't be so heavy. The family spared no expense. They've also hired a professional mourner to cry into a microphone. This goes on for about 10 minutes. In traditional Chinese culture, it's believed the larger the emotional show at a funeral, the larger the family's devotion to the dead. I love this. You know, my my brother-in-law is Chinese, and we had a really giant Chinese wedding uh, in New York City uh, many years ago, a couple, like five or six years ago. And it was one of the most amazing experiences I have ever been to because I think I've been very... uh, cut off from what a different tradition is like you know there's this like a part of the culture is that you know um the families bring this giant wad of money they if the food is bad they take money off the top okay you're getting less you know so basically they are constantly (laughs) judging how much money they're giving you by what's going on okay that was a good music i won't take money off it that so like they are judging the meals and the and there's like all these beautiful ceremonies and uh elaborate um it was just, it was wonderful and celebratory. And it was a way that I felt like, I mean, I grew up watching uh, very uh, Catholic church weddings. That's what I grew up in. And then when I first saw my first Jewish wedding, I was like, oh my God, there's so much personality here. And then when I saw this Chinese wedding, I was like, holy shit, like we do this wrong. Like, you know, like we do this wrong. Like it was so, it was such a scene and there's money and there's fun and there's exchanging of gifts and there's. There's so much personal family history, uh, and you you, you see a, a, a bit of it here, but I will never forget those moments. And I think 
what always cut me off from the Catholic Church was both my grandparents died um, like kind of back to back, like within like three or four weeks. And um, their ceremonies were exactly the same. And mm. it was such a bummer. Same church, same funeral parlor, same everything. And there was no difference. It was like a cookie cutter version of what that was. And when I saw that when I was a kid, well, not a kid, like probably 25, I was like, I vowed. I was like, I never want to do that. And when I got married, I made it very unique. Obviously with June, we both made it unique. But, uh, you know, again, like trying to get your personality and not just do the the what is required and, and really make your community a part of it and, and find these things that you want and not just a, impressing everybody else, which is kind of at odds with what this movie is doing because it's like do what your family wants. But it's also saying I'm also taking the light and saying I want to do and I want to embrace the things that I love because that's my life and I'm sharing my light with you. So that's all, all in all, there's a lot to kind of go back and forth with. Yeah, I, I mean, that lens of, of duty and manners and politeness and, and judgment that you're kind of holding up and like comparing those different weddings. I think that is so interesting to kind of flip it around and look at, you know, at least the culture that I was raised in here. Because I'm thinking, when you said the thing about bringing wads of cash to a wedding, I was like, you know, I gasp. That sounds so hardcore. And at the same time, we went to one of my cousin's weddings and my aunts and I were so annoyed that it was like a dry wedding that we bought booze, hid it under the table, snarked about how awful the wedding was the whole time. I mean, is that any better? That's much worse. That's much worse just to like make judgments and hold them in to yourself and and never express anything. Just be like, grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, that, yeah. What is their problem? Well, then that and that is, I think we as a, I think Americans do that all the time. Like we're going to just talk shit instead of actually I don't know. Maybe we're uh, we're like, you know, maybe we're just trying to avoid conflict. They're not avoiding conflict. They're avoiding grief. So they get together to have all the fun. Like what you want. I think what you want is I want the I want to have a party with the person who's dying. I don't want to sit by their de- their deathbed. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love. It's like they're embracing that. It's like, no, no, no. Let's do what we want. It's like the best wakes are the ones that are don't feel like wakes. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I find myself getting caught up in the little things and I appreciate Nene cutting through. Like even when um, her two sons want to get drunk and she's like, I'm breaking out the nice booze. And I Googled yeah. that booze, Mao Thai. I was like, I've never heard of that. And it is very, very, very nice. It considered very, very expensive. And she's like, what am I saving this for? You know, I think I get that even so much during this pandemic. Like I bought these stashes that I'm afraid to use. And then I'm like, why am I giving myself grief about eating salmon for dinner? Like, just eat a fucking salmon. You know what I mean? That, yeah. But I'm, I get very hoardy and like judgmental about my use of things. And I want to like ration. And the idea of just living a little bit more. Well, that's it. Like, I think we always are holding ourselves back from doing it. I mean, and so this is a movie about life and love and embracing and family. It's a It's a movie of everything. And it's a movie that is universal, even though it's incredibly specific to Chinese culture. I mean, and that's why this movie really, I mean, it becomes this little engine that could, especially in award season. I mean, for a small movie to get this much kind of uh, heat is impressive. It was. I have to admit, I felt almost like nostalgic for last year watching this movie, thinking about the award season. Because, I mean, you know, like here in Hollywood, if you're like in the film industry, award season is like a legit holiday. It is like... Christmas. Yeah. It stretches on four months, maybe. And it's endless amounts of like parties and cocktails and come here and meet Nene and come here and meet Nene. Because the, the actress right. who played Nene, um, Zhao Suzanne, she was 
the darling of last year's awards. You know, like she just was like holding court everywhere. Everybody wanted to meet her and just charming the pants off of everybody, which is like kind of your your secondary job when it's award season. Like it's like you get paid to make the movie and then you have to do the award season anyways. Like if you are at all like a contender. And so like she had such a hard road ahead of her in terms of getting an award in this country because it's a performance delivered entirely in Mandarin. You know, like, do we, as film viewers here in America, like, are we able to see through a performance that we can't, you know, just completely hear in our native language? Like, can we even see what she's adding to this performance Yeah. in in Chinese? Because Zhao Suzanne, I mean, she's like a massive, massive talent in China. They were worried they couldn't afford her when they tried to cast her. Well, by the way, they tried to lowball her and then they found out, oh, crap, she requires so much more money. <laughs> uh, and then that was what happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, she's a huge deal. I mean, she's like getting, I don't know, Meryl Streep, maybe it's a, she's a she was a huge TV star and a theater star. And so having her do this, her very first American film at all, like if you go to her IMDb, it looks like she's a she's a first time talent, which is so crazy. Um, but then for her to go through all of this and then win the Independent Spirit Award is just amazing. It feels like such a recognition of audiences being able to look at that role and understand like, even, you know, the intonations and the body language and the performance and the smile and like how much charm and charisma she puts into things like from grabbing Aquafina's ass to, you know, sitting down and flirting a little bit with older gentlemen to like her annoyance with her boyfriend, Mr. Lee, how many shades of her rainbow she gets to show, even if we yeah. can't understand the language directly into our ears. I actually want to play like a couple clips from the award show because like this film just did so well. I mean, Here's Lulu at the Independent Spirits. I am so honored to be accepting this on behalf of uh, Teacher Zhao, is what we called her, um, as a sign of respect when we were shooting. Uh, She's stuck in China because of the coronavirus, uh, sadly. Um, But I know that she would have really loved to be here, even though she didn't read the script when I first sent it to her. Because she was like, what is this about people lying? We do this all the time. What's dramatic about this? Uh, and she also didn't care that much about Hollywood. Uh, and we, didn't, we were an independent film, and we didn't pay her a lot of money. And she's doing a lot of work in China where she gets paid a lot of money. So go Zhao. <laughs> and of course, I mean, that brings us to the person we really need to start talking about, which is Aquafina. I mean, oh my gosh, yeah. I love this. I'll admit, like, I am not cool. So I knew Aquafina as an actress very recently, before I knew her as a rapper, I only recently went back and heard the brilliance that is my vag. My vag feel like winning the lottery. Yo, shit got turned down from eHarmony. My vag, one best vag. Yo, vag, one best supporting vag. Yeah. It's time yeah. that we let the world know. Bitch, your vag look like Janet Reno. Aquafina's a genius. And her vagina is 50 times better than a penis. Well, Amy, if you're going to be playing Aquafina's classic hits, you got to play my stuff with Aquafina from what? Future Man. Oh, yeah. Come on. We were what? the video game attendants in uh, in Future Man, the pilot of Future Man and, and uh, another episode, <laughs> a couple more episodes. Yeah, we were, uh, we were a buddy team. Why are you still playing that stupid game? I know why. Because he spanks it to this one. Tiger. Ooh, that, that is not true. I do not spank it to the tiger. Dude, you spank I... it to the tiger so much your right hand should be called Siegfried, man. Uh, Bam, yeah. you like that? Yeah. I'm working on my slams. Wow, I, I'm such a dummy to the world of Aquafina. I had oh, no, no idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I met her right uh, when she got back from Crazy Rich Asians and then right when she got back from Ocean's 8. 
uh, you know, not met her again, but I, I saw her buff at those two times. And it was kind of a crazy moment because, you know, she had just finished this movie and, you know, it way, you know, before anything, you never know what's going to hit. And it just became, she exploded and she's just been so, uh, she's awesome. She's great. And she's super funny and lovely and smart. And, you know, she rallied for this part. I mean, she wanted this and, you know, uh, and, and she's the perfect, I think that she brings so much humor to this. And I think you could see this cast in a different way. And the character would seem, she's so New York, which is what I love about it. Like, um, that you see the West in her, but then she, you also, she's able to show both sides really well. I, the movie's funnier because of her. The movie's better because of her. I, I just don't know anybody else who could do that role. No, I think it's really, really, really well done. And I, I mean, I also totally understand, like, when Lulu Wang was first, like, mentioned the idea of casting her, she was like, what? The comedian rapper? Like, what are you talking about? And then Aquafina taped, you know, because I think Aquafina, from the interviews I read, was like, this is basically my story. You know, like, yeah. I moved here, you know, at a similar young age. Like, I've been wrestling with, you know, my ties back home. And so she taped herself. And I think what really struck Lulu Wang about her performance was that, she said she had a quality of light and dark that you could sense at the same that she was cracking jokes, but that there was a real depth underneath her that she was absolutely you know, trying to mask in that that kind of dual level of the performance was just perfect for her. And then, of course, she wins the Golden Globe. I'd like to thank the woman who plays my grandma on the farewell, Zhao Shujen. Zhao Laoshir. Thank you. And um, most importantly, to, to Lulu Wong. Um, uh, our, our incredible director, um, you gave me this chance, the chance of a lifetime, and you taught me so much, and, and just filming the story, being with you is incredible. I, I'd like to dedicate this to my dad, um, Wally. I told you I get a job, dad. And, um, to, uh, to my, to my grandma, my best friend, the woman who raised me, and, um, to my mother, Tia. Um, who I always hoped was watching from somewhere above, and I hope that she's watching now. Thank you all. Thank you. You know, I feel like we've been talking so much about the emotions of this movie. I want to just say a couple more things about the technical aspect of it. Like, mm -hmm. I've been thinking so much about, like, Lulu Wong's use of motion. You know, she does a little bit of, like, the kind of keeping the camera still and having people move in and out so much that somebody even asked her if she was influenced at all by Ozu, and she's like, actually, no. Like, my real wow. influences are like Steven Soderbergh. I love Steven Soderbergh. I love Mike Lee. You know, I love the piano. I love yeah. the champion. Um, but she captures that like motion too. Like, it moves so fast when like the camera's on the lazy Susan and it just like is spinning around and spinning around and you're looking at all the faces. Or like the scene that I really love when when Billy is deciding whether or not she's going to blow money she doesn't have, like buying a plane ticket to China. And she looks across the subway tracks and she sees a woman who kind of looks like her grandmother through the train tracks mm. as the train is going by. And she captures this like kinetoscope kind of imagery, right? Where the train is going by and you see the grandmother through little glimpses in the train tracks and it looks like an old fashioned film camera. It, it's a stunning shot. I think it's so beautiful. This movie looks absolutely amazing. And I think you're talking about motion. I mentioned it earlier when the grandmother and, and Billy are walking through the uh, the wedding photography place. And then you see that little moment where the other couple comes in. There's so many things happening in the background when you watch the, the family uh, coming back after they lie about the test results, like the images on their, you know, their how their faces are when they're taking photos. This movie 
every frame is a scene, Amy, just like that YouTube uh, <laughs> series. But no, it really uh, every everything is framed so wonderfully, and it and it keeps and the it emotion. Means something. Of the mo- it means yes. something. Like the wedding couple is like in the background. You know, they're as they are in the whole story. Like her images have 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 resonance. The way that they shoot the karaoke scene from behind, you know, it's like there are so many. Uh, it just. It's impressive, and it's also a low-budget movie. You know that scene where uh, Aquafina is running to uh, to stop the test results. Like that was done in one take because they only had had you know like we talk about this a lot. Like only one shot to get something very very specific. And I I've worked on many a film where we only have one chance to blow something up or do something, and the streetcars are not coming, and it looks absolutely stunning. And that scene reminded me of I mean. Look, we love a running scene. We've seen so many running scenes, and we can go back to 400 Blows, and there's an energy there, you know, of that same kind of motion in that scene. Oh, that's so true. Except, except, and I love this about that scene, Aquafina stops running and runs out of breath. Yes. Because that's me. I cannot run. So the fact that the movie let her stop and catch her breath for a second, I'm like, oh, finally, I feel seen in a film as a person who was like last at the mile all through elementary school. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I love it all. I mean, now... Amy with them. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And you know what? Also, I think people haven't talked. I, I I don't want to stop it. And you know, also, I want to just say the music in this film is beautiful. I mean, she made the call probably maybe because of her musician background herself. You know, we already talked about how she played the piano in one of the songs. To have this really um kind of like emotional, but cold tinged classical score that I think is so beautiful to have like an original classical score to go with this kind of counterbalancing. I mean, I think one of the things that she talked about when she was designing the score, she wanted to have a score that had all the emotion in it that the characters didn't have, you know, and to figure out how to put meaning that isn't spoken on screen into the score so that it gets into the audience's mind. And it was really hitting me during the scene where at the end of the film, close to the end of the film, you see all of the relatives after Nene's like gotten the fake diagnosis again after the wedding. They're walking towards the camera and you have this chorus happening in the background. And it's this idea of all of these voices in this family kind of coming together and all of this emotion and they're united in the frame and they're walking with purpose and they keep going. Yes. And at the very end, it drops out so that you just hear the one voice, which to me feels like it symbolizes Aquafina. Although I have to say, you know what's been in my head the most after we saw this, after this film, what? is the closing track, the cover of "Without You." You know that that's an Italian, so you can oh, immediately yeah. recognize what it is. to say that is one of my favorite songs of all time except i realized i thought it was an original song done by air supply are you an air supply fan i'm like a I mean, huge air supply fan no i, mean, I wouldn't say i'm not i'm not a air supply fan but i'm not not an air supply fan how about that 
You're not not a nurse. I'll take it. Yeah. That's fine. I mean, to me, like this is the version of that song. Although maybe people know the song a little bit better from when Mariah Carey sings it. And I just, I just, I bring all this up because I want to ask you, Paul, like, what do you think of that as a closing song? You know, the song is literally, I can't live if living is without you. But she kind of has to, right? She kind of has to? Or is it is it all just the emotion of loving someone that much? But I much? think that's the lie. Right? That's the lie. That's that's the that's the version that we tell ourselves, but it's not the version that we want that we that's always the healthiest for us. I mean, I guess it's different for different types of people, you know, but I don't know. Maybe I, I like I honestly until we really just talked about it, I didn't even think about that closing song because I was kind of so taken by the final shot. I was like, oof. And I just kind of, I didn't even think about it, honestly, until you just said it. Well, I listened to that on my air supply tape for about six months straight and annoyed everybody in my in my uh, immediate uh-huh. life crazy. So what I heard, I was like, my song, it's my jam. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting choice of an ending song. It's like, lyrically, I think it makes perfect sense. And then it either... Because you're like missing somebody, but then it is literally a song about missing somebody who dies. But yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of like wrestling with that idea of like, does it capture the over the topness she can't say out loud or, or, or what? I don't know. It's a fun choice. Then to have it be an Italian on top of that. Well, there's something about the idea of like something that we know so well, but in a way that we don't understand it. And maybe it means something different. I don't know. Yeah. I've run out of my metaphorical weed. (laughs) Oh, well, then why don't I just be the total buzzkill and I'll read you a negative review of The Farewell. All right. Let's see what we got. That's All right. what I'm waiting for. This comes from The Financial Times. And there are so few negative reviews that I actually paid a dollar to subscribe to The Financial Times wow. for one day just to get this review and read what it said. It says, The Farewell. Um, blandness is the perfect weapon for defeating film criticism. I had no problem watching Lulu Wang's The Farewell, and that's my problem. It passed my eyes painlessly and emotionlessly. How does one respond to a movie to which one has no response? Aquafina is the one at the showdown to cry and smile and tearfully sing. The rest of the cast just keeps speaking their lines, hitting their chalk marks and saying eggplant. That's Chinese equivalent to cheese and family photo ops. The film could have had wit, attitude, poignancy, style, any single one of the four. Instead, it slithers along shallow and soapy. It's just a person who does not connect to it at all. There's yeah. no connection here. He wa- They watch the film and they don't feel any emotion. To, to watch this film and have no response, I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's a little bit dark. Yeah. Well, okay, Financial Times, I unsubscribed. Well, you know, obviously it was in the minority. And now we are talking about, you know, a film like this, which is still kind of fresh in our memory. It's it's a movie from last year. Um is this a movie that we want to offer up to the aliens? And I can jump in here first because I'm sure you're going to have a better point of view than me. But, you know, I think that there's something really interesting about this film in the sense that it feels like Tokyo Story in the sense that we get a look into a whole different world. And as we're building this list of different things, I love 
seeing different cultures really represented in something like, oh, I didn't understand this. I didn't know this. And to a point, I think this movie is actually exposing a culture in a more interesting way than a Tokyo story in the sense that like, oh, I didn't even know this kind of existed where Tokyo story talks more about like the pomp and circumstance of how certain families act. I don't know if that makes sense what I'm saying, but there's something about that. Yeah, I'm curious how this film is going to seed in our culture. Mm. You know, like what is right. going to flower because this film was planted? You know, like, is this going to wind up being a film that in history is more important as one of those films that brings everybody together? You know, kind of like A Raisin in the Sun, like we were talking about recently, where it's like, whoa, boom. Like, here is, you know, an all-star next level, like, writer-director that we're going to keep our eyes on. Here's a star that we're going to keep our eyes on and that we're going to, like, build up and give them more carte blanche to do what they can do and keep making films without compromises in the way this film was made. Like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. I'm very curious about that. I'm very curious about that. So, I don't know. I mean, I always get a little hesitant to say that anything should be shot up to space when it's like a year and a half old. But I think that this is fertile soil to me. Like, I feel like this this film is not an end in itself. Maybe kind of like the end of the film isn't an end in itself. It's almost the beginning of a new chapter of like her being well, honest with that. her mom and us, be, and us like, you know, proving once and for all, like how many stories there are to be told and how how much audiences are willing to bring themselves to something with a personality. Well, you know, I really, I think that, you know, in a way, I don't know if the, the mom needs to be told, but that's where we'll always kind of debate this and kind of wrestle with it because it's a bigger existential question. Um, I, I agree with you that I don't think that we can make the choice to put it up to space at this moment. But I will say, if you've not seen this movie, see this movie and let other people see this movie. Let people find it because it still is an independent film. It's not as much of a claim that it, you know, as it got. It, I'm sure there's so many people out there who haven't seen it. And I do think it's a movie that is a great movie to, to watch. And uh, especially now in this time, I think it really makes you think uh, so much um, about a lot of different stuff. It's a, it's a very positive movie. It's a positive movie about family. It's a fucked up family, but fucked up for the right reasons. Maybe we're all fucked up for the right reason. Yeah, maybe. 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 Amy, let's get into our favorite. I mean, this is the family. If we're talking about fucked up families, none of the families did anything as wrong as this family right here, which is leave their son home alone. I'm talking about the McAllisters, a very special Christmas unspooled. We're getting into our first Christopher Columbus, John Hughes collab Let's take a listen to the trailer. Where are you going? We're going to miss the plane. When the McAllister family left on their Christmas vacation. Did we miss the plane? No, you just made it. Yeah! They forgot one small thing. Have yourself. I have a terrible feeling. Did you lock up? Yeah. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm-hmm. What else could we be forgetting? Our troubles will be ours. Kevin! Home alone. Police in the northern suburbs are on the lookout for a pair of burglars who are calling themselves the Wet Bandits. We know that you're in there. It's Santa Claus and his elf. Get off my property. This is my house. I have to defend it. Where's your mother? My mom's in the car. Where's your father? He's at work. What about your brothers and sisters? I'm an only child. Where do you live? Can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. He's a kid. I mean, what can a kid do to us? Kids are stupid. I know I was. You still are, Marv. This is it. 
making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.